The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. What do you do in the absence of data? You try to get as much as you can. You go to the places, you talk to as many people as possible. You read the press, but you also have to look back at what happened the last time North Korea collapsed, because I think there's a playbook there. You're listening to Reuters War College, a discussion of the world in conflict, focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Hello, welcome to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. Of all the threats to the global world order, North Korea is perhaps the most dangerous. The regime's nuclear ambitions, unchecked by sanctions and sunshine policies, seem dangerously close to fruition. As the DPRK grows ever closer to become a nuclear power, many in the world have looked to China to curb the ambitions of its neighbor. Here to help us sort through all of this is Chinese history expert Adam Cathcart. Adam Cathcart is a historian and lecturer at the University of Leeds in England and has spent the past few months researching North Korea's special relationship with China. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Okay, so my first question is, why do people want China to handle the North Korean situation? Well, China's always had a lot of influence on the Korean peninsula historically, but I think most of the requests and the pressure that we see on China from Washington, D.C. And, and other places like Japan and even South Korea uh, is, is more rooted in an understanding that China's grown in power in the last 20 or 30 years in particular, and that the trade balances and other things since the fall of the Soviet Union have really fallen in their favor with North Korea uh, since that time. So it's uh, both sort of uh, imagine, imagined, I suppose, imagined Chinese influence, um, but it's also rooted in a, in a sense of the history that goes back not just to ancient China, but to the Cold War when North Korea sort of both played off and used as patrons the Soviet Union and, and the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Well, what's the relationship between China and North Korea now, right? It, China is North Korea's only trade partner, is that correct? Well, they're the primary trade partner. I mean, North Korea trades and, and has delegations going out uh, all over the world at various in various places, uh, various continents even. I mean, you've got this Mansude art studio, uh, you know, selling statues and uh, other things and their services and their designing services in places even as far as Africa and uh, Southeast Asia. But uh, their primary trading partner, yeah, is, is China. And, of course, they have a major uh, trade deficit with the Chinese. I think they take in about five times more than they export, even when they're exporting quite a lot of minerals. So their trade relationship is very important. But the, the political relationship, I think, is the one that is least understood. And then second to that is the security relationship. Um, and on the political side, you have a party-to-party -party relationship that dates back to actually the 1930s before the – Korean Workers' Party was even founded. They were members of the Chinese Communist Party. Kim Il-sung, the founder of North Korea, was a, was a member of the Chinese Communist Party. He spoke Chinese. He fought in Northeast China um, against the Japanese, etc. And that party-to-party -party relationship has, has really been maintained through all the difficulties of the Cold War and, and even up to the present, to the extent that the Chinese Communist Party basically helped to guarantee the transition from Kim Jong-il to Kim Jong-un. They more or less told the rest of the world, you know, back off. And told the North Koreans, that's fine. You know, we support we support Kim Jong Un if that's what you need to do, to maybe transition towards a more open system. As far as the security side, the military to military relationship is still um, 
fairly poorly understood, and, and we're not sure really how much the two militaries are talking to one another. But uh, I think that's somewhat less adversarial than, than is sometimes depicted um, in more recent terms. So it's a fraught but a long history. And so I think that there's kind of an understanding on the Chinese side, at least, and probably on the North Korean side, that uh, times are never going to be perfect, but you can more or less count on this party for certain things. Because we look, I, I feel like we in the West look at that relationship and think you've got this kind of chaotic world actor on your border. Why don't you do something about it? Why does China give them the amount of carte blanche that they seem to? Or are we completely reading the relationship wrong? Well, it depends how you're you're reading Chinese foreign policy, right? I mean, is China a revolutionary power? That is to say, are they are they drawing on that legacy, the revolutionary legacy, where they're drawn to North Korea for ideological reasons? And you know, this is a, a Leninist party state. This is a country that has a lot of affinity. She, they do a lot of things that Xi Jinping would like to see, right? The youth organizations are very strong. The kids are patriotic. They're kind of anti-American. They're very nationalistic. They don't even have internet access, of course, famously. And those are the kind of things that Xi Jinping sort of looks at China and says, hey, you know, we could, uh, we could, we don't mind that sort of thing. Um, so on the political side and on the cultural side, North Korea's got a few chips, right? They also support China at the UN in uh, areas that are less popular, right? Like the, not just the Taiwan issue, but Tibet and Xinjiang and, you know, North Korea is not a powerful country internationally, but they do more for the Chinese Communist Party than I think is sometimes acknowledged. And, of course, the main thing is structural, right? Going back to the Korean War, you, this alignment between the U.S. and South Korea. And uh, I think there's a, a sense that they don't want to destabilize the Korean Peninsula because the Americans are so close. Um, and it's not just the Americans, and it's not just the South Koreans, it's also the Japanese who are aligned with the United States. And the Chinese Communist Party has been very clear and continuously clear uh, since, the, since the late 1940s, uh, even before they got into power. Uh, in Beijing, um, that they were they really fear a sort of a Japanese revival under American uh, auspices. And the North Koreans are aligned with them absolutely on that front. All right. So let's change tracks just a little bit. Uh, I want to ask if we have any idea how close North Korea is to having a nuclear weapon. Well, they've been super obvious in their own testing. And they, in fact, at the UN, they sent a letter to the UN, uh, I think it was in early June or, I'm sorry, early July, not long after their, their most recent to uh, this Hwasong-14 missile test, the ICBM. And they basically pat themselves on the back and, and ask the international community for credit for being so transparent, right? That sort of, we have, we're showing you everything. We just want to be clear that we're making big progress here, but nothing secret, we're moving towards a nuclear deterrent, uh, an intercontinental nuclear deterrent and miniaturization of the warheads and things like that, because it'll stabilize the region and it will finally give us parity with the United States. What that doesn't answer, of course, is this obvious question, which you can't ask in North Korea. Wait a minute. Did you not have a deterrent before? The Americans haven't invaded your country. A lot of water has gone under the bridge. A lot of things have happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, etc., but uh, they have uh, they've basically put themselves mentally uh, and pro in a propagandistically um, in this space where they've got to move as quickly as possible towards nuclear deterrent. The one thing I would add, Matthew, is that it's not just that it's on the horizon and they continue to give themselves credit and Kim Jong-un credit, right, that he's the genius driving this program. They've even said he's helped to design things like rocket boosters, and it's, it's a little bit over the top. But this is a legacy program of Kim Jong-il. There was a big uh, Moronbong band concert, which is this girl band in North Korea that's very – I've managed to publish a couple of academic papers about 
um, and, and try to trying to take them quite seriously from a policy standpoint. And this band actually uh, provides a lot of signals. Um, the new history of the North Korean missile program is being told through images shown as a backdrop to this girl band's rock concerts. So you've got all these missile scientists and people like Jeffrey Lewis, these well-known arms control wonk, people who have sort of a following online, you know, grabbing all this stuff online, at, um, screen grabs and saying, wow, we've got to revise what we know about the North Korean nuclear program. Look at Kim Jong-il. Here's Kim Jong-il with Kim Jong-un uh, having a look at, at a nuclear weapon. I'm sorry, at a, at a missile which could carry potentially a nuclear warhead uh, in 2010 or whatever. So they're revising their history of that based on these kind of images. So what we know is continually growing, and the North Koreans are actually being sort of helpful in their own sort of tactical ways um, in, in explaining that, you know, they're getting closer and closer. So I don't think this is a, a straw man by any means. Their, their capacity is obviously, obviously making big steps forward, and the number of tests is getting more and more compressed. So they've been saving a lot of money, making, making a lot of money. I'm not sure how they're paying for it or if they can keep up this pace, but they're definitely making big strides. Right. It actually, it, it seems as if at some point in the near future, the world is going to have to reckon with a North Korea that has a viable nuclear weapon, right? And they're going to let everyone know because you don't keep a nuclear weapon secret. Well, precisely. I mean, the whole, the whole point is that, is that everybody's going to know. I think that what they're looking for is probably something along the lines of, if you go back to sort of India and Pakistan, these sort of rival nuclear tests, and um, back in, I think it was 99, 2000, I think they're hoping for something sort of like that, where there's you know, sort of a wave of opprobrium, probably tighter sanctions, et cetera, et cetera, but eventually the, the world and the region is going have to have to live with it. So I think that's sort of what they're going for. The, the question about what is the Chinese attitude, is there... Uh, a really strong anti-nuclear position that the Chinese take where they say, hey, wait a minute, now you've gone too far, right? Now you've gone too far, and now we're going to cut off whatever it is, oil. Uh, we're going to send back guest workers. We're not going to allow so many North Koreans legally into China to make this money. We're going to shut you guys down in various ways. We're going to you know, clog up the sea lanes and, and start treating the North Korean Navy like it's the Japanese Navy or the Americans in the South China Sea, etc. So there's more that the Chinese can certainly do, but or is what they're doing now sort of just, you know, are they more or less playing verbal games? This is just propaganda to make the rest of the world think that China is, you know, they say they're anti-nuclear, that they don't like North Korea having this capability. But in fact, they're going to let it happen for tactical reasons or because they feel they have no other choice. Well, we can look at what they're doing along the border, right? Yeah, that's one means. I mean, I've done a, I'm in the middle of a study now. It should be published next month with the Jamestown China Brief. And the Wall Street Journal just published a big piece, which I, I, I assume some people have seen. Jeremy Page did some great reporting, not just along the border, but just kind of reading Chinese military websites, talking to a few officials, actually, you know, seeing what's going on, working papers in um, various journals. Uh, and, the, and the PLA, this Guofang uh, Shirbao, which is just the National Defense Daily, which you don't hear that much about. Um, in terms, people talk more about the Global Times and getting Chinese signals, but the National Defense Daily publishes quite a lot of interesting stuff. And I think that what my reading of the evidence and my own travels along the border, where I meet, you know, I've met some border guards. I had some, I had a little run-in with some guys in April, and got to know some of them better than I had intended to. But uh, you know, that's just one little micro data point uh, in a broader reading of multiple data points and sifting through a lot of misinformation because there's a lot of rumors that are floated and you have to track them down. And half the time they're coming from a Japanese newspaper or a, you know some guy in an office in Hong Kong. 
But I think that uh, in terms of getting to your question, can China exert leverage along the border? They're certainly building a capacity, and that capacity can be used for a lot of things, right? There's an infrastructural capacity which can be used for trade and is used for trade, you know, customs houses, um, but they're also building up border defense, which they're doing in a lot of places, right? More cameras, uh, possibly using uh, over uh, unmanned aerial drones. Um, they've been lately. They've been rescuing more North Koreans during floods. In September 2016, there was a big flood. Just I think it was about 10 days after their uh, last nuclear test, and they sorry about two or two or three weeks after the nuclear test uh, in the extreme Northeast. And the Chinese rescued a few North Koreans and sort of brought them over to China for medical treatment. Just you know five or six people, and then brought them back. But this was reported on this last week. Um, there were floods again in the on the North Korean Chinese border. And I think something like 20 North Koreans were – the North Koreans actually called the Chinese border guards. So there's communications there, and they said, hey, we, we can't rescue these people. We don't have the capacity. So they were brought over to the Chinese side and brought back. So you know, there's, there's some cooper, cooperation happening on that border. There's security cooperation in the sense of public security bureaus, right, like watching South Korean Christians, probably watching some foreigners. There's a guy, Kenneth Bay, an American who was uh, detained uh, by the North Koreans for over a year. Uh, and I think the Chinese and North Koreans definitely uh, coordinate on those kind of cases. Otto Varmbier, I think, is a slightly different case. I doubt there was any coordination there because Varmbier wasn't a missionary along the, the North Korean border. But uh, I think that at the end of the day, there are assumptions about what China is doing along the border. We have to need to be examined. You know, namely, is the North Korean military being informed about what the Chinese military is doing? If it's a military drill, uh, is China sending signals through its media? and being very clear about what it's doing along the border. If, if the answer is yes to both of those questions, then the North Koreans probably have somewhat less reason to be nervous. What I would be worried about if I were in the North Korean shoes is these little signals from hardliners in the PLA, like Wang Haiyun, a, a former general in Nanjing who publishes a lot, who's kind of a, a vocal hawk on these issues, where they talk about potentially having to go into North Korea to do exactly the things that Americans were talking about in 2016 in Syria, right? Set up a safe zone or um, basically uh, create a buffer between its own territory so, and, uh, and North Korean refugees uh, and, and people trying to get out of North Korea. So they're, in other words, if you're dealing with a massive humanitarian uh, problem, that those North Koreans are not going to flow into Chinese territory the way they did during the Korean War in numbers of like 10,000 here, 10,000 there. We're not talking about millions. Um, finally, uh, in the recent uh, kind of discussion about this, uh, there was some misinformation that was put out that China was getting ready for a massive North Korean influx. And uh, there's a guy named Liu Chao, who's another kind of gray beard in Shenyang near the border. He's a fairly conservative guy, not a military man, but a top think tank official. And he very much a party aligned. This guy's got, you know, he, when no one else is able to quote, he's able to quote. Um, and he does talk to a handful of foreigners, although I did have a journalistic friend who told him that uh, when he called him, I think in 2011, he, the guy hung up the phone on him and said, I don't talk to CIA spies. So he's a, he's, he's a rough, rough and tough guy, but Liu Chao said uh, there's about, uh, our estimates are about a million, that there might be a million North Korean refugees in the case of a North Korean collapse. So I think China's got enough, we could talk more about this if you like, uh, capacity in, in other areas um, and, and enough, uh, enough practice, more or less, uh, to, to stop, a, to staunch a North Korean uh, refugee inflow. But that, that whole notion of the meaning of the border then, and, and would Chinese troops be doing this within sort of North Hamgyong province or North Pyongan province or, you know, Kangye, where's the line? Uh, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother question, I think. 
And we will get to that, but first we are going to take a break. You're listening to War College. I'm your host, Matthew Galt. We're on with Adam Cathcart, and we are talking about the relationship between North Korea and China. Thank you for listening to War College. We are back with Adam Cathcart. I'm your host, Matthew Galt, and we are talking about the relationship between China and North Korea. So before the break, we were talking about the border and one thing you said in there that, I, that, that caught my attention, and I have to ask a follow-up question on, is that you said you got to know some of the border guards a little bit better than you wished. Uh, what, what's the story there? Well, I think it's a, a story of what China was doing in April 2017, and a lot was happening at that time. There were a lot of rumors. There was an NBC news report, which basically said that people, uh, American reporters had talked to some officials in the DOD or in the Trump administration that said a preemptive strike was coming on North Korea if North Korea was going to test another missile or nuclear weapon around that time, because there was a thought that April 15th, which is the birthday of Kim Il-sung, you know, he's now 105 and nicely dead. I've seen his body in Pyongyang, uh, nicely embalmed, I should say. Um, so there was a thought that this was going to be the day where they did another major provocation or a major test. And so there was a lot of, uh, Mike Pence was on his way to the region. He was going to come soon. Trump said that there was going to be, uh, the uh, USS Carl Vinson was on the way in Armada, as I think he put it. So tensions were quite high. Uh, and of course the military drills were ongoing, uh, in, uh, between the U S and South Korea on the other side, which always puts North Korea into kind of a frame of, uh, these aren't just drills, right? You're, you're getting ready to strike. Now you could argue that a lot of that is meant for domestic consumption, on the North Korean side, but there you have it. Of course, tourists in Pyongyang didn't feel anything. There's not a sense of urgency. People were mainly getting ready for this parade that happened on, uh, on April 15th. So in any event, uh, there were a handful of foreign reporters uh, floating around the area uh, that month, and I talked to several of them, and uh, basically not a one of them got anywhere near the border without being first sort of intercepted by Chinese, usually plainclothes, public security bureaus, but other times uniformed soldiers. And those, it's just pointillistic. This isn't, you can't say that there are 150,000 Chinese troops along the border, as I think the Sankei Shimbun reported on, on April 9th. So uh, I was up there four days later in two men. And um, yeah, I've taken some photos of the North of the North Korean side because there was amazing uh, flood. The, the river moved, the Tumen River. It's quite shallow anyway, but it, this is that there was a huge flood up there last year, and I hadn't been there since September and of the previous year before the flood happened. And uh literally the border moves. Uh, so I was taking some photos of that and, you know, what happens on the other side, there are, you know, fewer North Koreans than normal. This land, these sort of deltas within the river weren't being farmed anymore because they've been totally turned into rocks uh, from just the power of the river, from the power of the floods. And uh, anyway, that the, the process of taking those photos, um, I was, uh, yeah, picked up by some uh, North Korean border, uh, sorry, by some Chinese border guards. Uh, who then managed to examine every, all the contents of my laptop, my cell phone. Uh, I had one image of North Korean border guards that had been published that I had taken a screen grab of or something from a Chinese website, you know, six months ago, and that that was a problem. But, uh, yeah, they were all very, very, uh, very friendly. They eventually escorted me, the two uh, plainclothes guys escorted me out of town. Um, I was with a Korean-speaking colleague, uh, Stephen Denny, who's a, uh, a, a, a Koreanist, and uh, writes about the ethnic Koreans uh, as well, Korean nationalism. So through our combined Chinese and Korean language capability, uh, we managed to get have, have some interesting conversations with the plainclothes guys. The, the border police themselves were 
quite friendly, cordial, but we went through, you know, six layers of the bureaucracy basically in the space of an hour where, you know, tell me your story. Okay, now my boss is going to come tell him your story. What are you doing here? Let me, you know, look at all your documents and stuff. So the, the point is, I suppose, that, that uh, tensions were high, but, but also that they were quite carefully watching the border. People can read my, my stuff is coming out about that probably in the next month, and I had a piece about it in the South, morning, South China Morning Post uh, about a week after it happened, I suppose. But um, the one other thing I would just mention, though, is that uh, I was not charged with espionage, uh, nor was I labeled as a, as a journalist. Um, but the journalists are very, very closely watched, and China's put together this whole new public security campaign. On April, In fact, it launched right around that time, April 15th, of uh, where we're supposed to be mindful of foreign spies all the time if we're Chinese. So it's the research environment's getting more and more difficult, I think I would say, in China. Well, it sounds like they are, they're prepared for whatever's going to happen, right? They're, they're preparing for the worst along that border region. Oh, absolutely. And I think that uh, I haven't traveled to the Myanmar-China uh, frontier, but I do some work in this field that is called borderland studies. And that's, there's a lot of theory that people are throwing around. You know, do the people that live in the region, are they called borderlanders? And is hybridity happening? And are people evading the state? Or what is the meaning of sovereignty? And it's like this fetishization of the border almost. And uh, you get really excited talking about the biopolitics and passports and, you know, getting around uh, local police and the meaning of being a local on one side of the river. And that's all exciting. Um, but it's not so useful in terms of trying to understand what is you know, what, what is, what's really happening along the frontier, but it is useful for talking to other people working on other borders. So I think that China's border with Myanmar is one where we could probably do more comparative work because there is a major refugee problem in these Rohingya uh, areas or whatever uh, on the, uh, on the Myanmar side. And uh, the, that's one of the things that I've seen is that the Chinese military press, they don't make those explicit comparisons. But if you read about how they talk about military drills on the Myanmar side of the border. It's exactly what they're doing with the North Koreans. They're saying we're transparent. We're telling the other side what's going on, but we're going to do artillery drills. We're going to get ready for biological warfare. Uh, we're, we have to deal with refugee blocking. Um, and it is a, it has an intimidating function, and they use that language. Um, so it's transparent, yet it's intimidating. So I, I don't doubt very much that it's not just to tell the Americans, hey, we're ready for whatever. Um, because then they're not really telling the Americans all the ins and outs of the uh, of their plan, of course, uh, for a, for a North Korean collapse. But there's also a signaling function to the North Koreans, even if they're talking to them, which they say they are, that those those activities play. And there's a domestic element as well to tell the people in the region, in Jilin province, Shenyang, Liaoning, whatever, that, hey, we we're ready for anything. Um, that's a traditional function of the state, after all. Do we have any sense of what they think that ending will look like? Are they expecting America to do to come in and invade along with South Korea? Or do we have any idea what they think is going to happen? The thing that I've seen lately in some, uh, some writing by Chinese academics is this idea that uh, we can actually talk about a post-Kim family, North Korea, but it is going to remain the DPRK that we, the Chinese security you know, community, I guess I would say, we don't want to, we don't necessarily agree preemptively to South Korean unification, a South Korean led unification uh, of the peninsula for all the reasons that are normally, you know, and these haven't changed much since, since, you know, books were published in the 1960s about, you know, China crossing the Yalu and why they, why they would choose to intervene in the Korean war in the first place. Right. So going back to kind of the root of, of Maoist uh, security practices and the outlook on, on the Korean peninsula, a lot of that has not changed. So Xi Jinping, I think, is a somewhat of a traditionalist in this regard. 
Um, I think they would like to see a North Korean state more friendly to China. They have these three no's, I think, that they use, which sometimes change. But um, one of those is that there should not be the development of, a, of an antagonistic uh, regime in North Korea. So North Korea is called belligerent now globally. But the Chinese haven't really labeled it as much, right? even though they sometimes will get a lot of abuse in Chinese media, the North Koreans. Um, but as long as, as long as it's a friendly regime, the Kim family can do whatever they want, I think. Um, or we could, the, North, the Chinese can deal with a, a North Korea that is not led by the Kim family. Now, they're talking about all that now, but what, what's lost is the hypocrisy, really, that, look, you know, Wen Jiabao, Hu Jintao, you know, and Xi Jinping was, was part of the, the Politburo in, in this time when this was all happening. And he was already the anointed successor. You know, you made your bet, right? And you made your bet about supporting the Kim family. So it's that's the weird thing about the Chinese Communist Party. They will complain, and they complained in the 80s. They complained in the 50s about the Kim family's centrality to North Korean politics and how odd it was, and how sort of aberrant it was. But they've they've supported it when it needed critical support every time. All right. Do we have any sense of? how the new South Korean government is looking at all of this? Because I know it was a very, it was a strange election in, you know, the, the previous administration was marred by scandal. How are they viewing all of this? We, we don't hear a lot about them right now. Well, I, I, my, my information on this is slightly, uh, is not as fresh as it ought to be because I'm not in Seoul and I don't, I haven't met the new foreign minister. I had some colleagues who did. Uh, my colleague Stephen Denny is a good source on this. Um, and kind of seeing what is the new approach from the new foreign ministry, which has a, an experienced uh, UN sort of refugee, actually uh, oriented uh, foreign minister uh, in in place. But uh, what I did see when I was in Seoul at, at the as a guest of the foreign ministry, and I met our vice foreign minister and talked with a basically was at a conference with a lot of Chinese academics. And what I learned from that kind of you know shoes boots on the ground, I guess uh, experience. Um, was that it's so much of South Korea's relationship with China now has been distorted and framed through the THAAD issue, this uh, theater, you know, high altitude anti-missile defense, which was put in place. And I think that's where we're seeing some flex, where the the Moon administration is basically they've I think they feel maybe they've been saddled in a sense with this anti-missile defense system that's been set up on a golf course. And the Chinese have been pressing hard on this. And it's not just sort of backroom conversations. It's been a full blown online nationalism, all the stuff you've, we've been reading for the last 10 years about sort of the mass nationalism, party-directed, centralized, you know, very highly coordinated online campaigns, shutting down soft power initiatives uh, and uh, constricting, for example, you know, Chinese tourism to South Korea. And uh, Latte, I was at a Latte uh, South Korean department store in China in April, and it was basically empty, gigantic place. Now that's that's my little anecdotal point, my anecdata. But uh, on the structural side, the, if you read the Chinese press, I mean, the fat issue uh, still isn't gone. And I think they're, they're trying to get as much as they can. Um, colleagues like Bruce Klinger and others you know, in, the, in Washington who are more security-oriented, uh, Dan Pinkston in Seoul is another name of, for people to follow, but uh, will tell you that you know, fat is defensive. Uh, the Chinese are basically totally overplaying their hand and overreacting to this anti-missile defense. But because it it's supposed to cover North Korea, but in fact, they feel it's aimed at China. So South Korea is right in the middle of all of that. And there's a lot of rhetoric in South Korea about we're a middle power, right? There's, uh, there's a, these big soft power initiatives. And the fat issue just manages to crash right into all of that and say, wow, South Korea actually doesn't have that much influence with China. They're beholden to American security interests. 
and there hasn't been a fundamental rethinking of the U.S.-South Korean uh, security alliance. And if anything, I think the transition from uh, the, the Park administration to the new Moon administration indicated that Moon was going to have to be tougher on North Korea than he had appeared to want to be in the campaign. And, uh, and then the North Korean actions, that always happens, right? The South Koreans come in often talking about, you know, we're open to whatever, trust politic, you name it. And the North Koreans just say, that's fine, but we've got a, we've got a timetable <laughs> for missile tests, uh, nuclear tests or whatever. And they don't plan to stop those. So, Well, it feels like all of this is coming to a head and everyone is preparing for it to come to a head. Uh, let me ask you, as the expert, do you think in our lifetime we're going to see the end of the Kim dynasty or the DPRK? It's hard to know uh, because there are so many open questions. There's, our data is still quite flawed. But if you look at what defectors are saying, uh, there's, a lot, there's a handful of new defectors coming out of North Korea. I've, I managed to meet one before he defected. Tae Young Ho, who was in London, I met him a couple times. Uh, he never revealed to me that he was uh, planning to leave, of course. But he's come out as a very hard line, basically saying he thinks the regime is kind of on the ropes, but they're not going to give up their nuclear weapons. And uh, there's a new guy who's uh, now based in Virginia, uh, who's been talking a fair amount, surnamed Ri, R.I., uh, talking to Anna Fifield at the Washington Post and some other people. And these guys, you would argue, are pretty well disposed. This is not; These aren't people who have been, you know, who are in a gulag or just, you know, on the periphery. Hyun So Lee is another one who had left North Korea, you know, quite a while ago uh, and uh, living in China, being on the periphery, not in the center of power. But these are people in important ministries who are basically saying, so these are important voices from within North Korea, basically, and the North Korean bureaucracy and the Workers' Party saying there's a lot of doubts about how North Korea is being run. There may be a chance to sort of uh, break down the, the Workers' Party rule. Um, on the other hand, structurally, I think, I mean, defector voices are interesting. They're important. We should be listening. Um, on the other hand, if you look at the structures, uh, there's no U.S.-China alignment. Um, I don't know that the United States, how much you could give up to China to, uh, to get China to actually talk uh, at a more systemic level about what the future would be. I mean, even basic stuff like deconfliction in the case of a, of a North Korean collapse seems not even on the table. I think that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is very clearly supporting uh, the existence of the DPRK, and I think they're going to continue to. I mean, the sanctions issue is a really big one. Are the sanctions going to bite so hard that the, that the North Koreans will be choked off? And it appears that they, they certainly are not now, and the Chinese aren't willing to, to go so far. I mean, there's, there's a bank that was recently sanctioned, and the sanctions advocates in Washington got very excited about this. And, of course, if you read the, the bank's website and dig around a little bit, you can see, oh, they just opened a new branch. And on the Liaoning Peninsula. So, I mean, these kind of there's there's small signs that the government is going is going to let these businesses continue their work, uh, if not their work with North Korea that's being punched by by uh, Congress, for example, which is which is trying to punch hard at China, uh, and and increasingly with the help of the, the Trump administration, on on just North Korea's finances. Um, I mean, if you travel to Northeast China with an eye on North Korea, you can you know there's 50,000 North Korean workers. In northeast China, in China, uh, many of them in the northeast, you know, 300 here, 1,000 there, etc., and they're not being sent back. You know, that money's coming in. So, I, I think it's a there's a number of things to look for for how the Kim regime is being sustained. China's had a power struggle recently. This is Sun Jiangtai has has been uh, sort of displaced from the Politburo, kind of, and there's so there's power struggles in China. Um, this guy used to be the head of Jilin Province, so he had a lot of dealings with North Korea, so he's been displaced. There's power struggles in North Korea, which are uh, 
obviously a lot more fraught because we just know a lot less about what's going on. We know even less uh, than what we know about China. So it's always a possibility. But but the last thing I'd say in response to that question is, what do you do in the absence of data? You try to get as much as you can. You go to the places, you talk to as many people as possible. You read the press, but you also have to look back at the what happened the last time North Korea collapsed because I think there's a playbook there that uh, both China and the United States can have a look at. And there's a lot that can still be learned from, from going all the way back to the Korean War to try to figure out sort of what went wrong here and uh, how can we avoid some of these missteps that almost led to a, a nuclear war between the United States and China, nuclear attacks on China, I should say, since they didn't have nukes until 64. Well, what are some of the things that we can do? Well, I think one thing you can see is, uh, you know, there's working papers now, but what what's the... Uh, in fact, you wrote a piece about this. What happens in the event of a North Korean collapse? Is there going to be kind of a local resistance um, that will rise up against the Workers' Party? What do you do with, with North Korean troops that are sort of floating around? And what I get disappointed when I read working papers on these things, which are coming out. Sice, Johns Hopkins is publishing this kind of stuff. Rand Corporation puts a lot of this stuff out with literally no reference to what happened in the Korean War. I mean, the the, the lesson for me from the Korean War is this regime was only five years old, but when they finally broke after the Incheon landing, there was very little cohesion of the military, right? These units were just floating around. There was a lot of surrendering. There was a lot of just movement. There, was, there wasn't much of a guerrilla resistance against the Americans and the South Koreans uh, in that period. Uh, so now the question is, is the you know, Workers' Party, uh, you know, indoctrinated locals to be much more fierce against the United States or against uh, South Koreans coming in. I doubt it. So when I read working papers about sort of, is this going to be like uh, the awakening in Iraq or whatever? You know, are there going to be anti-American guerrilla units that spring up and, you know, looking at where these arms are located? And is there going to be guerrilla warfare in every single county against the United States? I think that's highly unlikely. It doesn't mean you don't have to plan for those kind of things, but I think that um, there's that. There's also, if you read, like, Jonathan Pollock is a really good voice on North Korean nuclear issues who's written about history, kind of grapples with that. His view about the nuclear deterrent is that it's not meant to be launched. I mean, their probable use of it in the case of a crisis is not to launch or lob a missile at Los Angeles or San Francisco, Seattle, whatever, Bremerton, but uh, to instead they might just blow up some – you know, lines to Pyongyang, right, that they basically or in the on the sea on either side of the peninsula to basically say, don't come in here. Uh, you know, we've got a crisis, um, but we want everybody out. And uh, that's, in other words, a, a nuclear explosion that is not directed, you know, at an American military base in Japan or something else. And uh, the Nautilus Institute, Roger Cavazos and others have written a little bit about this as well. So those are the kind of things to look for that we wouldn't expect that. That obviously didn't happen during the Korean War. But there's this kind of discussion. Of, but they're they're looking at the history. They're worried about a land invasion from both the south and the north. I think um, their northern frontiers and the nuclear deterrent might be one way for them to say, you know, this is one way to keep to keep foreigners out. That's awfully dramatic and that's rather apocalyptic, isn't it? Um, but uh, it's possible. Uh, as usual, at the end of a war college, I'm a little bit more frightened and a little bit more depressed, but Adam Cathcart, thank you so much for joining us to talk about North Korea and China's relationship. My pleasure. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this week's show. War College was created by Jason Fields and Craig Heddick. Matthew Galt hosts the show and wrangles the guests. It's produced by me, Bethel Habte.
This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favorite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Hi folks, this is Rick Wilson from The Daily Beast's The New Abnormal. And I'm Molly Jongfast, a left-wing pundit and editor-at-large at The Daily Beast. I'm also an editor-at-large at The Daily Beast, a former Republican political strategist, best-selling author, and full-time troublemaker. Every Tuesday and Friday, we have fun, sharp conversations with people like Mary Trump, who revealed why her uncle is the worst president we've ever had. Or Ben Stiller on how the world of comedy is changing thanks to our political landscape. Tune in to The New Abnormal to hear us have fun conversations about a world gone mad. Acast is home to the biggest podcast from the U.S. and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. 